0: It is no secret that our healthcare systems are built to react to sickness and health events, not to keep people healthy in the first place. If we want to get serious about producing health for our patients, we have to start shifting our healthcare systems to address social determinants of health. But how is such a seismic shift even possible? And what is your role as an occupational therapy practitioner in this new era? Today on the podcast, we are going to look at a journal article with a proposal for mobilizing our hospital systems to address social determinants of health. And then I am thrilled to be joined by Joy Dahl, She is an OT who has been working on the front lines of addressing social determinants of health, and she will share her insights from the movements that are already happening and how occupational therapists can be involved. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of social determinants of health, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. There are so many awesome features of the club that I'll share at the end of this podcast, but for our purposes now, I just want you to know that this is where you can go to take a five-question test and earn a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to recognize the categories of social determinants of health and the foundational factor for addressing them. Our second learning objective is you will be able to identify ways that social determinants of health can be addressed by OT practitioners. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we will bring on Joy Dahl to discuss how all this can play out in your OT practice. The article that we are looking at today is called Getting Serious About Producing Health. It comes to us from the very prestigious JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and was published in 2022. The article begins with this orientation to social determinants of health and their importance. The author shares that it is estimated that genetics account for approximately 50% of variations in health among individuals. Healthcare accounts for about 10% of the variation, which to me was a surprisingly small percentage. So what accounts for this other big 40%? You guessed it, it is those social determinants of health. So in other words, social determinants of health have four times a greater impact on your health than healthcare. Social determinants of health can be broken into five categories along with one foundational factor. And these are one of our learning objectives for today, so log them in your memory. These five categories are early childhood experiences, two, education, three, workplace conditions, four, supports for aging, And five, community resources. These resources can include multiple things, including food security, housing security, recreational opportunities, community transportation, environmental protection, and prevention and management of violence. And in addition to these five categories, there is this really important underlying foundational factor, which is fairness. In other words, equitable communities are healthier communities. So the author then turns to this global problem of underinvestment in social determinants of health. So while many stakeholders have already invested in the categories above, It is easy to see that as a society, we just have not invested enough. Most of us can simply look around our own communities to find evidence of gaps in these areas. Our current way of doing things is not going to carry us forward if we want to move into this next era of improving global health. So after this introduction, the author moves into the section on the culpability of the healthcare industry. The author suggests that part of the reason we are under-investing in these five categories is that there is so much money tied up in maintaining our current healthcare system. And that's why he believes it is on healthcare institutes to start shifting their resources in a way that will make a bigger impact on health at large. So how could hospital systems actually do this? How could hospitals actually help us produce health? The author argues that every hospital should establish 10 teams to focus on 10 specific social influences. He suggests that these 10 teams could include one on health coverage, another on food security, a third on housing security, a fourth on immigrant needs, fifth one on corrections in prison health, a sixth team on climate and decarbonization, a seventh on voting rights, an eighth on education supports, ninth on early childhood supports, and 10th, a team to focus on elderly and loneliness. Team focus areas may vary on individual community needs. For example, one community might opt to focus on decreasing firearm-related deaths, while another might focus on expanding job opportunities. The important thing is just that they have 10 teams addressing these 10 areas. He believes each team should be chartered by the board and CEO, should have an assigned executive sponsor, should measure and report progress, should receive a generous budget, and have license to partner with community organizations and healthcare systems across the nation. Furthermore, salaries of all hospital executives should be tied to the 10 team's successes. After laying out these 10 teams, he goes into how hospitals could build on the work that is already happening. The author says that many hospitals already have programs in place that could be folded into the 10 teams and their focus areas. That way, hospitals don't have to start completely from scratch. Additionally, teams could partner with national programs to help get their initiatives off the ground. These national programs could include Built for Zero, which works to reduce homelessness, the Transitions Clinic Network, which provides supports for individuals post-incarceration, And they could also consider partnering with the Action Collaborative on decarbonizing the U.S. health sector. I'll link to all of these programs in our show notes. The author wraps up this article by addressing four potential objections to the 10 teams framework. So we'll work through those four objections in his response. The first objection could potentially be, should healthcare systems exert economic and political influence without the involvement of community voices and additional experts? His response to this objection is, no, they should not. This would be a misapplication of the 10 teams. The 10 teams should actively participate in community-level action and strive to be the voice of their community in any higher-level initiatives. The second possible objection that he states is that the 10 teams could overwhelm a workforce that is already exhausted and in short supply. His response to this is that the 10 teams framework would help make healthcare more meaningful, dynamic, and energizing. It could even help draw in a new generation to the field. The third possible objection is that more focus is needed and 10 teams is too many. His response is this objection underestimates the potential of health systems and the vast range of needs that they must address. That being said, smaller hospitals with revenues under $1 billion may choose to support fewer teams. And the fourth possible objection is that no one will pay for the work of these teams. And his response is, yes, that is largely true. Reimbursement for most of these activities does not yet exist. But hospitals have an obligation to start addressing the harm caused by social determinants of health, even as we wait for population-based healthcare payments to catch up to this new paradigm for care. Hospitals should start by allocating 2% of overall budget to this effort. And his conclusion to the article, he says, there has been a lot of talk about social determinants of health across the healthcare space, and now it's time to take action and address them at scale. I should have said this at the beginning, but this was clearly an opinion piece. It is a bold proposal for what healthcare can look like moving forward. We've talked so many times on the podcast that we know healthcare is going to change over our lifetimes. We don't yet know what that change exactly will look like, but here is a vision for a possible future direction. And there are so many things happening right now in our communities, at the state level, at the federal level, that OTs can be a part of. And one OT who has been doing this work, Joy Dahl, OTD, OTRL, FNAP, is the Vice President of Community Programs for Sync Health. In this role, Joy supports cross-sector partnerships to build a social determinants of health ecosystem that includes community-based organizations, health information technology, and healthcare care organizations. She led the first EHR integration of health care and social care in the state of Nebraska. She is a passionate advocate for health equity, supporting programs like Health & Dwelling, a medical respite for the homeless, and also the Greater America Pathways Hub. Prior to joining SyncHealth, Joy served as the inaugural executive director for the Center for Interprofessional Education and Research, or Ciper, at CHI Health. She's also served as the vice chair of the Department of Occupational Therapy at Creighton University. Currently, Joy is still an associate clinical professor of occupational therapy at Creighton University, where she gives guest lectures and designed a course on health informatics. She is the author of the textbook Grant Writing and Program Development for Occupational Therapy Practitioners, colon, Making the Connection. She has also helped author over 50 book chapters or peer-reviewed journal publications. Her speaking engagements have included a 2018 TEDx talk, which was entitled Cultivating Collaboration in Healthcare, The Journey of an Accidental Expert. Joy earned her Doctor of Occupational Therapy degree in 2003 from Creighton University. In May 2022, she completed a mini-MBA from the University of Arizona as a recipient of the Common Spirit Equity Impact Scholarship. So without further ado, I will patch Joy into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Joy. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It's great to talk to you today. I... I'm so jazzed up about this topic. Yesterday, I was listening to this podcast. It was super nerdy. It was all about neuroscience, and it was featuring a female hormone expert, and they spent all this time talking about biomarkers and enzymes and super nerdy stuff, but towards the end, she said that two of the biggest factors she sees on female hormone health are your early childhood experiences— and experiences of unfairness that like caused these big stress reactions in our body. And she actually closed the podcast by being like, I think every female needs to know their ACE score. And I was just so taken with this conversation because to me it highlighted how important the conversation you and I are having today is in all fields of medicine and how much attention is going towards it. But it opens up all these big questions because we're not prepared to look at these social factors of health. So I just feel honored to have you on because I see you as someone who is doing the work already and there's not that many people in our field who are looking at social determinants of health like you are. But before we get to all of that, I know there's a ton to talk about. I want to just learn a little bit about you and your origin story and start with how you first found OT.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting story when we were in our house, when we were 16 years old, instead of a summer job, you had to do a summer career exploration to decide what you wanted to be when you grow up. Oh. Yeah. So you, this is before like all the pipeline programs and all that stuff. So we had to go to the library and research <laughs> careers. And then we had to find people to ask or shadow or whatever. So I was I actually uh, babysat for a kid who is on the autism spectrum and I was telling his mom, like, I'm, I've got to do this thing. I don't want to do it. I was complaining because <laughs> yeah. I thought it was lame, of course. Uh, yeah. You're 16 and you think everything your parents say is lame. <laughs> and she's like, you know what? We're really good with, with my son. And she's like, you know what really helped him was occupational therapy. So old school, mm-hmm. looked up in the phone book like <laughs> and called this OT at this hospital. And she was so thrilled. Some 16-year-old kid wanted to know what OT was. That She just showed me everything. She took me in the NICU. I did things like you would never be allowed to do today. So <laughs> she she took me under her wing and that was just it for me. I was just like, I'm going to become an OT. So I knew really early on and I knew what it was early on. And yeah, that's really how it came to be. And then it was deciding where to go to school and what that would look like. And
0: yeah, that's how the journey began. I love stories when people, especially parents, like call out the attributes of an OT in individuals. That's so incredible to me. I think I've said this before, but I feel like as a profession, we're always like people don't know what OT is, but that's just not entirely true because people know OT well enough to like identify someone like you and be like, oh, she'd be a great OT. Yeah, that's just it's an incredible story.
1: I think OT is just something you have to experience. And once you experience it, you're bought in, right? Like, yeah, people get it. I, yeah, I just talked to someone who I had referred to OT and she's like, it's changing our lives, you know, and so mm. for your daughter. So I think you just have to experience it, right?
0: Yeah. So you find OT in this awesome, really unique way. You head into an OT school. How did you discover social determinants of health? Well, I would say that I've
1: always been just kind of a different OT. I originally wanted to like do OT in faith communities and look at health in a different way because I always saw health systems and hospitals as like something that was separate from the community, you know, a little. And I mean, I guess the best metaphor is the ivory tower metaphor, right? But that there's a lot of health that happens where people are and why mm-hmm. do they have to go somewhere? So I was really interested in that and actually did you know, now they call it the capstone, but those experienced my doctorate in that way. I was very interested in actually, it's kind of funny, I was going to go to Emory and get a master's in public health and go that route. And then I was getting my bachelor's in OT. And then my friend came back from the AOTA conference. And she had this joke about moho that we would always say, and on a t shirt, and then it said, a doctor of occupational therapy. And I was like, what's that? So that's how I found <laughs> the OTD on a t shirt. Like, if God oh has goodness. signs. Yeah. <laughs> and so there were three programs. And so uh, that's how I decided actually to come to Nebraska because I went to undergrad in Alabama. So, yeah, if they're signed. So I kind of switched from the MPH route and I was like, I actually just really love OT. I want to learn more OT. So that's what made me go on. And so I came into the doc- that doctorate program knowing I wanted to do non traditional things. And so actually after I graduated with my doctor, I did a VISTA with AmeriCorps and worked mm. at a nonprofit. And then I, again, didn't want to do a traditional OT job. I always did like therapy on the side, like home health. I worked for a home accessibility company for a while, helping with home home safety assessments and things. So then I actually was a grant coordinator of health resources and services administration grant onto Native American reservations. And so I did OT in the hospital there and in the community and then did a bunch of other stuff for the grant. And so I've never really practiced in that like kind of traditional sense. And so Mm -hmm. I've always been interested in, you know, at the time it wasn't called population health, now it is. And just seeing the impact of culture and where people live. You know, when I worked on the res, I had to learn about powwows and beating and you know, can games and all of that to be able to provide meaningful occupational therapy. So I just have always been interested in in how, where people live, you know, and, and when I worked on the reservation, they had boil orders for water and it's like, this shouldn't be happening in a developed country. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and then I also supported our program in the Dominican Republic. So doing therapy where we're in, we go to houses and homes and just be in the community. I've just... Always believe that's where you make the change. And even when I did home health and like I did some home things and senior living communities, like it would just blow my mind, you know, I'd go in and there was a woman one time that had four shower chairs and she wasn't using any of them. <laughs> and I was like, why are you not using these? Like you're a fall, right? Like, you know, you need to. And she's like, well, every time I go to the hospital, they give me one of these. And the issue was that they were having it spray in her face, the shower. And I was like, you know, oh, yeah. you can turn the shower chair around. And she's like, I can. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then she adopted the shower chair and we got, we donated the other three that she didn't need. And that was the reason, like, it's such a small reason. Yeah. Right? So the context is everything. And when it comes to social instruments of health, a lot of that context, people don't have control over. So we have to think at a systems level to be able to start to make the incremental changes that help people flourish. So OTs understand that on that detail level. So why not understand it on the systems level?
0: Mm -hmm. I understand from a previous podcast I've heard you on that you also worked in like almost a primary care clinic. And then now you're working more like connecting different organizations in Nebraska. Can you tell a little bit about those two experiences real quick too?
1: yeah, so I, I had a wonderful, amazing opportunity to actually work to build a clinic from the ground up with an amazing team, and that clinic works today. And we designed it to be team based in nature so that it would be all inclusive. We included everyone on the team from the front desk staff to social work to our physicians. And we designed it not only in architecture, so it, it's a what's called the Disney concept. So there's a pod in the middle for a team collaboration. And, you know, people aren't supposed to like have desks, they open uh, the clinical team and then there's doors where they enter the exam room and then the patients enter the exam rooms from the other side so that the whole team is open to collaborate. And so we had OT and PT integrated. We had social work, we had behavioral health. And so we designed it and then we designed all the clinical workflows. So how the team will huddle, how we'll get therapy outside the outpatient clinic onto the floor, how do we make referrals and handoffs and that whole process. So we worked through all of that. It was an amazing experience. And we did some evaluation looking at electronic health record data, and we were able to show huge impact on hospitalizations, readmissions, hemoglobin A1C. But we went to the health system, they were like, you've impacted our bottom line in ways that are not positive, because those are revenue generating mechanisms for health systems. So we worked as a team and turned around and pitched it as a value-based clinic. And it was the first clinic in Nebraska to move over to values-based contracts. Hmm. So I became really interested in how you use data to tell a story and change business models. So I came over to work for the statewide health information exchange, which is where EHR data feeds into a central repository and is pushed back out after it's matched. And so they launched looking at social care as a data source that is under misunderstood or not understood because we don't know what needs because current practice in many health systems is I'm going to screen you and I'm going to give you a piece of paper with a list of food pantries. Good luck and go deal with your own food insecurity, right? There's not a connected infrastructure. The efforts to do this are really in their infancy all over the country. I've connected with people all over the country doing this work and we know we need to connect, but how we do that is complex and And, you know, we're dealing with different industries that haven't really worked together, but essentially the efforts are to try to connect healthcare and social care because they're two systems that have been working in parallel and Mm -hmm. how can we bridge them to work better together because they are helping meet needs in different ways and they do need each other to help maximize the health if we think about health in a broad way. So that's what I've been doing the last couple of years and it's been really fun and interesting and that now there's starting to be regulations around social needs screening and you know do we have the community capacity once we start screening everyone to actually meet those needs so there's a lot of unknown questions not just like in the work but just everywhere as i talk to people and then there's also an infusion of technology as a potential solution and you know then you're talking about community trust you're talking about marginalized mm-hmm. populations it just is really nuanced and layered so I love that. I love being in all the yeah. complexities of that and the tough current trying to figure it out, but it is very much still all new. And so people are really trying to figure out what it means and what it looks like. It does it is replicable across communities. The state of North Carolina really has done a lot statewide and had lots of mm-hmm. challenges and success. But states are different. And so it's interesting to see what it looks like. We work in Nebraska and Iowa and both the states are very different in how they want to approach it. So how do you balance those all those
0: nuances? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's two things I want to call out from what you said. One was on the podcast, we've been talking about how the challenges ahead of us in so many realms are going to require this like unprecedented level of collaboration. And we've only talked about that in like a theoretical sense. So I'm so thankful to be talking to you because you are living that. You're experiencing how hard it is to get different teams on the same page and what are the possible tools and what do those relationships look like and how do we use our OT skills in a new way to do this. And the second thing I want to call out is just that you experienced how this focus on social determinants of health of – collaborating in new ways are going to upset our business models. Like you said, mm-hmm. we have been so focused on the, the individual level. If people come back to the hospital in lots of ways, even though we've tried to move away from this, that's still a revenue generator. So this is a total switch in so many ways. It's a switch in how we work and think. It's also a switch in our business models. It requires new tools. And I'm so thankful to be talking to someone who's Living that and experiencing what that looks like on the day to day. I want to start really basic with how you describe social determinants of health. In the article we looked at, there were these five categories. My understanding is there's a couple different sort, like reputable sources of how they're described. I guess a two part question it was like, is there one framework you really adhere to? And also, how do you describe it to someone who's never thought of it before, like in the simplest sense?
1: Yeah, I think the simplest is you're impacted by where you work, live, play, pray. That's how I define it. And your health is impacted directly by that. Uh, And as OTs, we understand that so well because context enables or disables, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I learned very early in my career, people get better that shouldn't and people don't get better that should. And, you know, there are nuances there that are complex to understand, and they're multifactorial. So I really just talk about it as, you know, you're impacted by where you live and the services that are there and are not there, you know, what jobs you have access to, transportation, healthy food, you know, we all know about food deserts, but also lots of fast food in places, you know, and and what access people have and what's what they view and, Then how do people know how to interact with those systems? Some of these systems are incredibly complex. And so you're at a different level based on, you know, your education and all of the factors that, again, you may or may not have control over. For example, you mentioned early on early childhood trauma. I mean, that's not something you have control over, right? Mm -hmm. So that will influence the rest of your life. And so that's factors. The World Health Organization has a good framework. So does the Healthy People 2030. Mm -hmm. But I just try to keep it simple that you're just your health is impacted by where you live. And people tend to think about that, you know, you can change your life, especially in our culture, like pull up your bootstraps. And yeah, (laughs) and there are there are ways you can change your social location. But they're not always easy. And there are some aspects of social location you cannot change, right? So How do we mediate that and how do we support that? And from a business perspective, there are people that are willing to support and understand social care. They see that if we don't invest in it, there's a lot of consequences. And one of the things I learned from working on the reservation that I just love about Native culture is how forward thinking Native people are. I mean, when they signed treaties with the United States, those treaties still stand today for healthcare mm-hmm. and education. And I, where we have to move is what we invest in now will have an impact in a generation. We're not going to see an immediate effect because we're changing structural things, you know, and that that's, you will see some immediate impact by dressing. But one thing I think is really important is distinct between a social need and an SDOH. So a social need is we all have social needs, socialization, mm. access to food, education, but a social determinant of health is a structural issue that the person may or may not have control over. And so those are much harder to address than a social need because Mm. a social need of getting someone food is possible, but what is the underlying issue why they don't have access to food or why they have food insecurity? That may be a social determinant of health. And so the question also becomes is, are we addressing social needs, which is still at that individual level you talked about, Sarah, like, this person needs food, let's give them food. But then there's the structural issues about why can they not afford food? Are they eligible for services? Are they not? Do they understand they're eligible? Do they have citizenship? I mean, all the things that impact whether someone can access that or not. So we have to think about it in both ways to probably solution around it.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the supplementary articles that I'll link to, Really calls for OTS to obtain a she called it, I think of a structural competence, which I agree with you that that I think that is a really helpful way to think about social determinants of health. Just the word social can be so confusing. like are you talking about individual connection? And that's helpful for me to hear you also use that structural word and to be thinking about things on that structural level.
1: Yeah, the other term you're seeing come out is social drivers of health, and CMS has used that term, and mm. that that's more of a, like, solution-oriented, like, what are the drivers that help with the structural issue? So, because you're right, like, is SDOH the issue or is it the solution? And so I think people are trying to say mm. SDOH is the structural issue, and social drivers of health are the potential solutions to create the safety nets needed to help people flourish, essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that concept of like all these systems we live in, that's intuitive to me that those are a big driver of our health. What's not easy for me to wrap my mind around is how do we change that? Who's responsible (laughs) for that change? And turning to this paper, getting serious about producing health they put forth an idea of what that shift could look like. So I'm curious to hear what were your impressions of this article?
1: Yeah, I think a lot about this because I think change ha- needs to happen at the micro, macro, and meso levels probably. You know, like for example, when we work with the clinic, we change the way that individual clinicians practice as individuals in a team. That's necessary. But then we came up against macro issues of There's reimbursement models that are impacted. And at the meso level, our health system was saying, like, we still have to make money, right? Which is totally Mm -hmm. understandable. So I think what's really interesting is you have to be prepared to tackle all of those. You as an individual won't, right? So how can you tackle it in your sphere, right? And what does that look like? And you have to have some understanding of all the levels so that because it would have been really easy if we did the clinic and then we went to the leadership and they're like, this hit our bottom line and we're just like, okay, we give up. Let's revert back to the way we did something. We're like, no, we're going mm-hmm. to try to attack the next level of change. And so you definitely can't do that by yourself. You know, I, yeah. I credit our team and and being solution oriented to say like, okay, what's the way that we can do this and looking to models that are doable. But I think about it like that. And so I always tell people like, you can advocate whatever place you're in just whatever level you're comfortable with and so you know I think it has to occur at all those phases and I think who's responsible is all of us right and Mm. what does that look like I met with an OT student this week and I felt like all I did was give her just permission to be non-traditional in the way that she wants to live as an OT and I don't I never really needed that permission, but I did feel shame that I wasn't traditional for a long time. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like, yeah, that's like right ridiculous sure. notion. There's no wrong or right way path. So I think we all have to have it, but I understand that that intimidates people, but mm-hmm. there's a way to do it at every level. And if you can make a small change, because it's a million small changes that, that domino up to the big change. Right. So If you're saying we need to screen people for social needs here, or we need to be able to make referrals at the micro level, that's advocacy that's important. So I see all of us playing. I think to your point earlier, collaboration is critical. I do not know everything, nor am I ever going to, I don't have the lived experience of of someone that's different from me. I have my lived experience. So can I solution for a lived experience I don't understand? Probably not. I need to have voices from those lived experiences listen and co-create that as an advocate without saying like you know I have the solution that is challenging in healthcare because we've been taught to identify problems and introduce a solution but Mm -hmm. what's so wonderful about OT is co-creating is so critical to motivation and the just right challenge and all those beautiful OT things we do so we know we won't be successful if we do therapy to the patient they have Mm -hmm. to be the therapy, right? So that same concept goes at the micro, meso, and macro levels, right? Get the right people around the table, you know, ask the hard questions and know, like you might not be the one that actually makes the change, but you can be there, you know, supporting and helping and, you know, whatever it may be. I think OTs do a great job gathering the resources needed and putting the teams together. And helping people figure out and flourish. I feel like when people call me and they're like, how did you get into this space? I'm like, it's really just doing OT on myself and you should do it on yourself. What motivates Mm -hmm. you? What are you excited about? Like we do that for our patients. Why can't we do that for ourselves and figure out what our path is? And the only box is the one we put ourselves in, right? So Mm -hmm. how do you break out of that and think through? So I know it can be scary for people to think about these structural issues, but You also have to have, I think, some cultural humility and recognize like, I'm not going to understand this because I didn't have this lived experience. That's okay. People aren't going to be mad at you about that. They get frustrated when you try to say you understand and then there's no way you can. So Mm -hmm. I think going into those spaces and, and doing that. And I've messed up. I've said the wrong thing. And I've been really lucky to have people help me grow and learn. Because this is a space where you have to be a little bit comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I've had to learn more about business and understand the business Mm. approach because I think the other thing it's really easy in this work to do is is to point fingers and say, like, you're in fee for service. You don't value patient care, you know, and this, you're a business. And yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's really, that's the easy way out. The harder way is to say, okay. Your goal is to make money. So how do we do that, but also still meet this mission that we have? If we just point fingers, we just get further apart. And I saw this happen in the health system. I saw Mm -hmm. the clinicians call the financial folks like penny pinchers and negative names, and they don't care about patients. And I saw the financial people go, these clinicians have bleeding hearts, and they'll run this business into the ground.
0: Mm -hmm. We
1: just get further apart when we do that. But when we start to come together and say like, guess what? All the assets exist in this community. We have to connect the dots. And do we have the will to bridge that to come together? And I do see that movement. We've had our managed care organizations all invest in a program here in the community. They compete, you know. So to start to see them come together and invest in something that we can all support, that's a huge win, right? And so you start to see. But that comes from How do we work together? How do we support your priorities and still meet the community need? And so OTs, we're just good. I don't know how you articulate it very well, but I think we're really good at like figuring out what motivates you and how do I pull that out? And how do I get you to join this thing Mm -hmm. and go with it? The only way I know how to describe it is woo, which is the strength finders winning others over. But I think that is something OTs are good at because I know when I was working in patient care, if I couldn't get the patient to want to do the therapy, I felt like a failure, right? That was really Mm -hmm. what it was about, you know, to get them invested in their own intervention. That same concept just carries on at all levels, right? Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense to people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The team aspect of change, our unique place as OTs in that, yeah, I just feel like everything you're saying is all things we've been like I said, talking about on the podcast, but you're living it and experiencing it. I'm so curious, after reading this article, one of the premises was that our hospital systems need to be the leaders in this change. They have the infrastructure, they're taking so much of our healthcare money, they almost have this moral obligation to lead us. Is that the reality that you're seeing? Is it hospital systems? Is it motivated individuals is it the state of nebraska like or is it just everyone networking together like what's the is there a leader yeah that's a good question
1: so health systems i think do have a lot of mission and resources and so what's really interesting is how do we start to help them take data-driven approaches that we know are going to have good investments. Because if you read the literature on community benefit, so in health systems, for those of you that don't know, health systems have to do community needs assessments and they have mm-hmm. to have, they have community benefit and they have to reinvest in their community. But there's pretty strong evidence that that hasn't shown a lot of return on investment and that there's not been a lot of good strategy and each hospital kind of does their own thing and, mm-hmm. you know, all well intended Like, that's the thing I see. There's a lot of very well intended work, right? So how do we start to bring those together? And this is why collecting the data on social determinants of health and social care and social drivers of health is important because if we don't have that, we can't tell the story of that experience. We also can't track and see Like if you give someone that list of food pantries and you never know what happens with that and it gets more complex, for example, say the person has type two diabetes. It's not just about getting them food. They need the right type of food. So, you know, what we're starting to see is we're collecting data on these referrals and we now can track like what people are saying their needs are. You can move that upstream and say, hey, look, health system. Here's how many of your folks go to a food pantry. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. What could you invest in or prescribe? Can you prescribe food as medicine as a solution? And the data is going to show you, one, that's a need in, for your the people that come to your health system. And two, how does that start to improve their hemoglobin A1Cs or whatever it is when we get people the right food? We can start to collect the data around that. Then we can drive evidence. Health systems have resources, payers have resources, but I don't, think they always know how to properly invest it. And I'm not saying they're not making impact. They can be, but I think we could come together and do it better. In some states, that may be the government. In some states, that's not going to be the case. There's opportunities for public health. There's opportunities for, I think it's going to be public-private partnerships Mm -hmm. coming together. We work with our 211 and United Ways. They've been doing outreach to folks in the community for, in our community, 100 years. So there are experts, I guess how I see it, and this is what I tell people, all the dots are here. Yep. And so I think to your point, I think every community is trying to figure out the question you asked. How do we connect them, one, and two, who leads that? And how do we do that in a way that, for example, if a health system leads that, you know, they're going to do what's best for their health system. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that in a negative way, they have to sustain, right? Yeah. So how do we own that and know that and go into the partnerships you know, not disillusioned that they're going to come do that. And then you have to think about trust that people have with health systems. Some communities and cultures do not trust health systems. So them driving it would be problematic to involve certain communities. And so I think that's a nuance we also have to think about. And that will vary, right? Community to community. I think I'm really excited because I see a lot of conversations in health systems about trust and this effort to build trust and really listen to the community and think about the lived experience of people. But I also think to be fair to our clinicians, maybe they don't have some of those lived experiences. And so Mm -hmm. it can be really hard to have empathy for someone who's unhoused if you have really no idea or someone that is going hungry when you've never really experienced that yourself, how to keep that ongoing awareness and super easy to get frustrated with the system You know, I've talked to many care coordinators who are trying to discharge someone who's unhoused and it's hard. It's hard work. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think we solve like the problem of unhoused individuals without working together. But yeah. Yeah. What does that partnership look like? Who does that? And how do you have open and honest conversations about what is driving each partner so that we know that because at the end of the day, we don't want the hospital to go out of business because they were trying to solve homelessness. We we want them to still be there. So mm-hmm. we have to balance all these nuances. So, And you you need someone to help people lay that out on the table and just have those conversations. And so I see that being different in different communities.
0: The article talked about these 10 teams mm-hmm. that ideally each hospital system would have. It's hard for me to picture my local hospital system implementing 10 teams. But are there, do you know of like success stories of like one team that's doing well? Are there, I don't know, do you have any? Yeah, well, I always think about, I love the article
1: because I think it's it's proposing something bold and transformative. I believe that you can't solve complex problems without diverse perspectives and teams. I just don't Mm -hmm. think that's possible. Yeah. So, and even though like in our society, we give credit to people like for something like Obamacare, like Obama didn't do that by himself, right? So, (laughs) uh, or the iPhone wasn't created solely by Steve Jobs, right? So there are people and teams. And so that is the nature of innovation. It has to be that way. So yeah, I think the work we did at university campus is very transformative. And then during actually COVID, there was a hospital-based team that did some really interesting work because they couldn't hire nurses and they actually developed a OT pharmacy led team and the nurses Mm -hmm. were more in the background and that OTs would actually go in and really establish the status for the patient and advise how much nursing services were actually needed for the patient. And so I did some help to help them design that model and implement it. And it was really about a workforce shortage issue of we have, and then they saw during COVID how OTs and others could do other roles, right, because they needed them for other things. And so it opened up this opportunity to innovate because of the workforce shortage, because they were looking at having to close the wing of the hospital or figure out who could do that. And so they called me and I said, well, technically, an OT could tell you the status and how much care this person would need and then guide nursing if we're okay with OT setting the nursing plan of care. And you know, they did the work and that model is still going, right? So, because the nursing shortage is still problematic. So, I think in times of, of challenge, we be more creative, you know, because to your point, not all hospitals are going to have the resources to have those 10 mm-hmm. teams and have the staff. But I think in sometimes under-resourced, teamwork is more natural because you know you have, you can't do it all, right? And you need other people. That's what I saw when I worked in you know on the reservation and under resource that teaming was so critical because there's so much need and no way any one of us could could do it by ourselves and then i think there's also the payment models of the health systems whether they promote that teamwork those 10 teams are great but if you're not in a health system that promotes teamwork and is promoting you know a lot of fee for service that's going to be really hard to do just because you know it's it's going to be hard on the bottom line teams cut cut what people often think about as interesting is about utilization. And it's not about cutting utilization. It's about the right utilization. So we want people to go to primary care and be healthy. We don't want them to go to the emergency department. So when mm-hmm. people talk about we're cutting utilization, I'm like, actually, we're transforming utilization. Yeah. And how people interact with the healthcare system is a better narrative because that's really what's going to change behavior. And I don't know about you, but I want to be seen by a team Mm-hmm. I want my, my healthcare care providers to talk to each other and figure out what's best for me. And I don't want, you know, when I think a lot about it, you know, for example, if I'm working with a patient and their pharmacy's goal is to get the patient to a level of zero pain, but then they're on so much pain meds, they also can't meet the goal that they've set with me to get dressed. We have to negotiate, right? Because that pharmacist isn't trying to undermine my goal and I'm not mm-hmm. trying to undermine theirs. And that's the kind of care I want, not not a provider or a team member that just meets the goal they have for me for that yeah. thing. I think we think that patients view health
0: in like these very segmented ways. Patients do not. <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking, I'm like, I can see that being one of the prime movers going forward is the will of the general public. Like people mm-hmm. are smart. They're going to learn that the health that's being provided isn't optimal. And hopefully they're going to be asking us to change, asking our hospital systems to change. I don't really know what that looks like, but there's so much information out there now, like data is becoming so much more democratized. I can't see a future where there's this groundswell that puts pressure on our systems, like from the ground up.
1: Well, I think we already see that. I think people manage a lot of their own health. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. silly that like I track my I do. Yeah. exercise and it doesn't go to my provider. And I go and they're like, Joy, how much do you exercise? Well, that literally I the data is available. Of data. Yeah, yeah. but there's no good way for me to share that with them. I mean, there's some through some apps and through portals mm-hmm. and things like that, but we could do a much better job. At the end of the day, patients own their own health information. There was a law put out in- the last couple of years called the information blocking rule. So health systems can no longer block data from you or technology mm-hmm. companies. You have a right to your data, which is super important. Now, is it presented a way that is health literate and that people understand? No, because, for example, in the state of Nebraska, we have an immunization registry. You can go look up your immunization history, URI as patients. But it's, it's written in the medical terms. So like if you go and you don't know what varicella means, you might be like, what shot did I have? Yeah. Right? So there's also the, the role that we have of, it just can't be in the language that we speak as providers. How do we help people and empower them to look at the data? This is the same issue in social determinants of health. If we provide to community-based orgs resources around, here's the referrals you couldn't meet, They need help leveraging that and going to philanthropy or their boards and saying, hey, if you gave us this more resources, we could feed this many more people. If you think about connecting that, you could go pitch that to those health systems and say, hey, you have investment dollars. We know your patients need this resource. How can we work together? That's where I think we're going to go. Are we there yet? I'm starting to see some of it bubble up, but I'm really hopeful that we'll start to move in those directions. But patients are already doing that. I mean, think about Mm -hmm. a few years ago, nobody knew what their EKG was. You know, now people on the Peloton can can know that. And and there's been, yeah. So now you have to think about that. There's inequities and structural issues there, right? Of who has access, who can afford Mm -hmm. that. That will always exist, right? There will always be people that have access to
0: more information
1: and more data because they can afford to pay for those tools. But, you know, how do we make that available to everyone and in a way they can understand? Because Mm -hmm. in my mind, actually, a lot of these patient portals are a structural issue because patient portals are meant for people that can access technology, read English, and they're not often available in other... And they're in medical terminology often, which is super confusing unless you know. So it's not enough to democratize the data. That's not... Equity, right? So mm. you have to think about it through that lens too.
0: Yeah. I'm just hearing you talk, the scope of the challenges are massive, but matching that is the scope of the opportunity. I think I want to ask you a two part question. One, OTs who are working in traditional settings. What can they do? Like, what can, like, your hospital system isn't on board. It's just you as an individual. Where do you start? That's part one of my question. Part two What's your advice for OTs who are listening and are like, I want to make this connecting work my full time career? How do they get there? So, two kind of buckets of people. I'm wondering if you could speak to the opportunities for both.
1: Yeah, so I think one when you're working at a place, you should know their mission and what they're about and make sure it's a match with you, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Because you're going to get frustrated if it's not. And so that's a good question, I think important. And and you can try something and it doesn't work out and that's okay, right? Give yourself permission to go be where your your cup is filled rather than drained. I always tell people find out what teamwork is going on because the best way to start to learn what other people are doing is there Are there huddles? Are there care coordination meetings? Find a way to, to wheedle yourself into those things, right? Because unfortunately, because people don't understand, they're not going to invite OT. I was working with our clinic and I was at a family medicine department meeting one day talking about something not even related. And one of the physicians raised their hand and was like, hey, I've been practicing for 20 years and I don't know what OT is.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: and I was like, You know, and instead of going, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. I was like, oh, yeah, let's talk about that. And I thought about that afterwards of two things. One, I know that's a really smart, trusted physician who probably had that question a million times, and there was never a safe environment for them to ask that question. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I also think we did a lot is we did profession spotlights. And we would talk about we pick a profession every week, and we talk about it for a minute in our huddle, and you share a patient experience and referrals always went up. So ask if you can come talk about what is OT to a group of people. Yeah. Never underestimate that they understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, our physicians have to refer to us. That's terrifying that a family medicine physician doesn't know that, right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> right? And, and Ben has never been safe to ask that question, right? So I actually thought that person was very bold to admit they didn't have that knowledge. And we had a, a conversation. But you got to make that safe for people, too. So that Mm -hmm. would be the first thing I would say as a clinician to do. As far as getting into the SGH work, there are so many opportunities. You know, right now I work for a health data company. You can work for a managed care organization. You can work in community benefit offices. I do think it is challenging to people might look and say, OT, how does that fit? Because people don't have a good understanding of our history of community work and the ways that, that we do that. But I believe any change in anything is relationships and making relationships with people. And then honestly, there's not too hard a secret to success. Do what you say you're going to do. Show up when you say you're going to be there. Mm-hmm. Build trust with people and and show the value that OT brings and ask people to give you a chance, you know. But I do think getting in the door because people don't understand what OT can do, you know, in a lot of ways, like I'll throw plays that forward and I'm happy to do that. Is there like an, a clear route I can tell people to go? Probably not. But I'm happy to talk to anybody and give them advice. I do all the time just of how I got here. Mm-hmm. I think it's also just being like open. Like if an opportunity comes and just not being afraid to jump in and be like, I'll try that. I mean, when I started this social care work, I didn't really know all the answers. Right. And you're never. But then I started talking to people across the country. Nobody knows the answer. So that's okay, right? And so how do you get in and be okay with that mess? AOTA is really starting some conversations around social determinants of health. So getting involved in some of the work that they're doing might help. And then find other people because I always think the AOTA conference, going and looking at the posters is such a great experience because you can see what people are doing and people love to talk about these unique projects. Find people, ask them their story, ask them who they connected with reach out and talk to people. That's really the, it's all through relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to this organization now that it was a handoff from an OT friend to another person to another person. And then I got, so it took four people for me to get introduced to this organization. And they were all just really energizing conversations where we just were sharing like, what do you want to do? What I want to do? And they're like, oh, you should meet so-and-so. And so networking and putting yourself out there I think to get these non-traditional roles is critical because, again, they're not going to come to us as OTs, whether on that individual level or on the systems level, we got to put ourselves out there and show our worth because we can do it.
0: Mm -hmm. The opportunities are massive. As OTs, we're so well positioned to meet lots of them. Looking into the next five years, how do we as a profession need to change? What skill sets do we have? Or do we need to continue to develop? How can we mobilize collectively? What would you like to see from us?
1: Yeah, I would like to see the profession come out and say what role we think we play in, in social determinants of health. I think it's been pretty nuanced and narrow, in my opinion. I think there's a lot more we could do. And I think people that are doing the work need to step up and tell their stories like I am today. I mean, I think it's intimidating to do that, but... I always think about in groups or teams, if you have a question, there's someone else in the room that probably has that same question and giving permission for that. But there's the proliferation of social needs screenings. So joint commission and CMS are now gonna be requiring that. There are not rules about who can do those screenings. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to figure out in your clinic, who's gonna handle that and they don't know who, OTs are great at stuff like that and connecting people with resources. Maybe it's part of our discharge planning. You know, we know that if people don't have a good living situation or safe transportation or whatever, that they're not going to be able to do their ADL. So I think we should stake a claim that we as a profession can be a great resource in, in social needs, whether it be screening and making an action plan. Because trust me, hospitals are trying to figure this out. I talked to a big hospital yesterday. They're like, we have no social disturbance of health strategy. What does that look like? How do we work together? So. There's opportunity, as you said, mm-hmm. for OTs to be like, I can help. Yep. You know, so why not? And I meet so many nurses and other and pharmacists that are in non traditional roles. Like yesterday, this person I'm out with that was leading the pop health is a nurse. Why can't OT do that? Right. Like, why can't we lead the population health initiatives? We understand community really well. So mm-hmm. I'd like to see us really kind of just say how we can be that and then be an example that as a go-to because again for some reason no one thinks of us we have to say hey guess what yeah. we can help um, and we need to
0: think of ourselves too <laughs> yeah yeah and I
1: think that's important I I always I think OT is a profession we're really humble and I love that but I think we, it's time to be bold and say like and I'm not saying do it in a way we're fighting about practice acts but just that we can help too and be really out there and available as a resource. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to make ourselves indispensable to the team and show our value. And trust me, like I said, when people encounter OT, I'll I'll never forget one time I was just in the pod at our clinic and one of the physicians was talking about this patient that was just really challenging and it was a child and there was a lot going on. And I said, well, that sounds like a sensory issue. Because the, the child was chewing on the finger and there was tissue changes and they were trying to figure out if it had an infection. And I said, well, tell me, I just was there for something. And I said, well, talk, let's talk through what's going on. And I said, and it turned out it was a sensory issue. And the physician came back to me, I was like, that changed my whole perspective. Like, I never mm. even thought about that. And so she's like, now I'll go to OT when I have these things where I'm kind of stumped about what else it could be and it's behavioral. And she just never thought about it. Wow. Day. So. If you're not there presenting the ideas, it won't happen. And I always think about Amy Edmondson and her work around psychological safety. How many good ideas are missed because people are afraid to speak up or to advocate or afraid they look stupid? You're not. You're there to help. So so lean into that and be empowered. Mm-hmm. OTs are awesome, and we just need to own that.
0: Hmm.
1: It's it, you're in some ways you're right. It's time to stop complaining about no one knows what we do. Okay, that's the yeah. <laughs> That is what it is. Let's go. Yep. Let's yeah. Let's go. Yeah, because every person I meet that knows what OT is loves OT. Have you ever met someone that knows what OT is and isn't like? That's like the most amazing thing. Like I've had so many people be like, "I wish I'd have known about that,"
0: mm-hmm. but they just
1: didn't know what it was. So I don't see people going, "Oh, that OT thing. I don't like it." They, yeah, they, they <laughs> know. They're on board. So yeah. let's capitalize on that.
0: Yeah, I've been so inspired, joy by. Your work by the opportunities out there, just by where we're going in terms of, like this article said, producing health. Like there are just this whole horizon of untapped opportunities where we can bring so many more people along than we've ever been able to do historically. I can't believe it, we're at our rapid fire time already. I'd like to ask you just a couple of quick questions as we wrap up. How do you typically describe OT to someone? So I
1: tell people that OT helps you do the things you want to do every day that are meaningful. And mm-hmm. That's varied and different for everybody. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's how I describe it.
0: What's something you've read recently that's inspired you as an OT?
1: Yeah, a couple of books I've read recently. Well, I love the Midnight Library. That was great. Mm,
0: I've but read that too.
1: I, yeah, I, loved, I really loved Adam Grant's work, especially mm-hmm. originals about so, you know, people kind of think of me in the space of like, I'm non-traditional on this risk taker, but I don't feel, I don't see myself in that way. I think I'm very conservative and, and maybe better at pushing others than myself. And so it was really eye-opening to read in the book that like people are often risk-taking in like one area and then very conservative, but that we create a narrative around their risk-taking. So we assume they're risk-taking in all
0: places. Mm, interesting. And it
1: was really reassuring that like, okay, you can be an innovator or trailblazer in one place. And it's okay to like, I mean, I'm very routine oriented. You know, I eat the same things almost every day. I go to bed and wake up at the same time. Like people are like, your life's so exciting. I'm like, it's actually not. But but my profession and my career is very exciting. And so it was really eye-opening to like see the story behind and how we perceive people so differently
0: than maybe how they are. Mm Mm-hmm. That feels like a metaphor for OT where we can like stay anchored in like the things we know and do well, but also be like pushing the horizons in this new realm of social determinants of health. We've talked about so many things today. What is like the one thing that you would like people to take from this conversation as they, as we wrap up?
1: I think just, if you're excited about something and you need permission, like let's give ourselves permission to do Mm -hmm. new, innovative, creative work. Let's stop calling ourselves non-traditional or non-clinical. Let's call ourselves innovators. And let's stop complaining about that people don't know OT because once they know OT, they love it. How can we reframe that? How can we say, let me tell you about this amazing thing or let me help you experience it and here's the way. The other thing I'd say is that where we can all be change makers. And if you listen to this and you're like, I can't change the system, I can't do it by myself either. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but there are little things we can all do to make our communities better. And that's going to be different for all of us and all of our communities. But, you know, I mean, don't be afraid to do those things. And if you need permission to go outside the box, you're always free to call me and I can just say, you can do it. Yeah, and and <laughs> And failure will happen. That's part of life. So, but it's like how you won't experience loss if you haven't loved. Right. So how do we live? I mean, we tell people live the life to the fullest. And then I meet so many OTs that are like, I'm unhappy. And I'm like, okay, well, just do what our profession tells you. (laughs) you.
0: So yeah. (laughs) Well, Joy, this was just so inspiring. It felt like the conversation that we needed to have, I feel like it's built on so many of our previous episodes. So thank you for the work that you're doing for being here today and for giving us all that permission.
1: Yeah. And I I do encourage anyone to reach out to me. We do need to network or find the people that help us do the work. We need support. Can't do it alone. So I think You know, forums like this, Sarah, where you're really getting people's voices out there and telling their story, that's going to inspire people and give them the permission they need to be their best OT, their best self. So it's
0: really inspiring. Thank you for the work you do. Mm, Thank you. Wow, you all, you know that you are learning a lot when you walk away from an hour of learning with more questions than when you started. What is this new future of healthcare going to look like? How can we be shifting to this new focus on social determinants of health? Honestly, I do not have those answers. It is not clear to me. But the one thing that is clear from the conversations that we have is that if we are going to move into this better future, it is going to be a collaborative effort. Not only will we need to be collaborating closer as a profession in new ways, but also just collaborating with all these other stakeholders, which honestly our work already intersects with, but historically we have just not worked closely enough with. Like Joy said, all the dots are there. It is just time to connect them. And to help you take really concrete action steps in your healthcare system, I'm going to be linking to the screens that we talked about today, some of the resources, and some organizations that you can be following. Honestly, I might make a whole blog post dedicated to this, so watch for that on otpotential.com. I also want to encourage you if you are a member of the OT Near Me directory to tag social determinants of health as one of your areas of interest. I think it's really important to show each other and to show our communities that this is an area of interest and passion for us and that maybe you should be the go-to person in your healthcare system in your community to start leading these collaborations. And like I said at the beginning, you can go to the OT Potential Club to take a test and earn a certificate for your time today. otpotential.com is also where you can sign up to be a member of the OT Near Me directory. So I just encourage you to head on over to otpotential.com to see all of the supports that we have for you there. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care and we'll talk with you next time.